a high velocity question is something that accomplishes more than one thing at the same time. And often high velocity questions are my first question because I want the the guest to feel something, right? I want him or her to feel like they're being taken care of, like they're at a good restaurant, that someone did the research. So I want to convey all that. But I also want to ask a question that advances the conversation so it doesn't go round and round and loop-de-loop. I feel like we have to give ourselves creative license to say, What's the best question we can ask with the information we have at our, at our disposal to get the result that we hope to uncover? Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. There's a skill that we all use every single day, but hardly anyone is taught how to do it properly. It's not taught in school. Your friends and family won't be able to help you out. And most people don't even know that this is something that they can improve. But the cost of not improving the skill, in particular, is enormous. Mastering the skill will drastically improve both your personal and your professional life. Any guesses on what skill I'm talking about? I'm talking about the art and science of conversation. Today, I'm joined by the creator of Damn Good Conversations and the host of 1% Better Podcast. I'm pleased to welcome to Top of Mind, Joe Ferraro. Thanks for coming on, Joe. Stuart, the best in the game at the intro. Oh my God, so clean, such good framing, and honestly, really flattering. I'm so pumped to be here. I, well, that's a very flattering comment from you too, who's been doing this for much, much longer than me. So I want to hear first, you talk a little bit about kind of your, your past, and I don't mean past as in things that you did when you were young. But (laughs) if there was a particular moment that you can recall when you decided that you wanted to be a teacher. Well, it's interesting because at first when you said my past, I'm like, well, I didn't get closure on this one relationship. And you know, even though I'm happily married, I still struggle with that. But the truth is, I love how you how you asked that and frame that, which is I see so many people that wanted to be a teacher. They played with the stuffed animals and they lined them up and they had the makeshift chalkboard or whiteboard and they instructed them. Never, never my intention. I tried to be a major league baseball player and uh, I followed that path as long as possible. Went to a a four-year division one baseball school to play baseball first, academic second. And my coach, God rest his soul, he actually supported that vision. He was very old school. He thought it was foolish for people to say, oh, we all are in it for academics first. He said, as long as those priorities are one and two, he didn't care what order they were in. And what a breath of fresh air that was for me. And the consequence of that was I did well in school and uh, not so well in the baseball field, but that's a story for another podcast. I think as far as I could go with baseball, it was patently obvious that I wasn't going to get that, that call from the Yankees. And all of a sudden, it was time to start thinking about something else. And in the meantime, I had been studying literature and communications with a heavy lean towards communications. And when a guidance counselor at Pace University thought about minors, and it sounds so crazy, education popped up through a lens of coaching. So I can't plead guilty to always being the kid who wanted to, to, to teach, but it does seem, and, and my coach would later say, that I was a coach even before I was a coach. And I think that was a kind way of saying, 
I didn't excel at the college level, but at least I could think through situations. And I think there was a natural path eventually. When I talk to my wife today, she'll say, I see you as a coach. I see you as helping people. I, I see you as trying to bring out the best in people. So I think there's some roads that kind of were parallel, uh, but never a clear path where it was my dream from day one. I never really thought of being a teacher as the same thing as being a coach, but they are very synonymous in a lot of ways. I would say so. And I would think, you know, it's almost like a Venn diagram where you have kind of the intersection with mentorship and then relationships would be in some kind of bracket. And this is all things you figure out of your 22 years in. You start out thinking, you know, I want to be an English teacher. And, I, and when young people say to me, hey, my friend's thinking about being an English teacher, would you talk to him or her? I usually have a starting question that I'll say, yeah, I would love to, number one, but ask them why they want to be an English teacher. And a lot of times, Stuart, they'll say, because I love to read and write. And that's actually a huge red flag to me. Because when you say that, you, you have in your mind a scenario that you're going to get into the classroom and your pupils are going to love to read and write the way you do. Mm. And I have not found that to be true. Mm. So the coaching, the mentorship, and that relationship or rapport piece is what gives you a fighting chance to get them to unlock things they love to read, things they love to write. Sometimes there's curriculum cha challenges, sometimes there's not. But I, I do lean towards, you know, I, I even like this phrase writing coach. You know, if you think of some of the people we mutually admire, they're, they're not so much writing teachers as they're coaches trying to coax out of people their very best communication. And I think that's similar to how I think about it. You've also been hosting your podcast called 1% Better every Sunday since July 1st, 2017. What was, what was the purpose of you starting that podcast? The fascination with looking into a camera like this, having a microphone to amplify and to connect with, with other people. Someone recently was very kind and called me aggressively curious. And I have to tell you, at that point, I always thought of myself as curious, but I never knew it was something that I did at any kind of level that was above or beyond anyone else. And I still don't know. But what I do know is if you're curious, that's one thing. But how do you now move and express that art? How do you learn? I love to ask questions. I've been asking them my whole life to my dad, annoying him about a baseball question, or how do you make a recipe a little bit better? And uh, when my friend who's a major league baseball hitting coach wanted to launch a podcast, he had one problem. He didn't know what a podcast was. And it was 2014 and he was just getting into it. And we ended up co-hosting a, a baseball themed podcast for quite a while. And at 2017, he kept pushing me, pushing me out of the nest and, and thought that it was time. I had a list on my iPhone in the notes section of people I wanted to interview if I ever got the chance, kind of waited very long before doing it. I always had this thing that I've recently slayed, which is waiting for things to be just about perfect before I launch. And uh, I just felt that you know, while baseball was and is a big part of my life, I love wine. I love food. I love talking to people. I love travel. I love learning. There's so many other things that I wanted to focus on in this next chapter of my life. And the podcast was a public record of my learnings. And it just felt so natural to me to do it. And I knew it'd be hard work, but it's, it's been just a beautiful gift that I've worked at ever since. That, that's really nice. I love that. How do you think that being proactive in your learning and being purposeful and making sure that you have an episode every Sunday, how do you think that has influenced your work as an educator and a coach now? Transformational. Absolutely transformational. It, it's so, there's a spiral involved. It's 
I learned something from James Clear during a conversation. It goes into the classroom the next day. I iterate, I try it, I come back, I refresh it. I interview someone else the next week. I try something else. I'll say something I heard in class into uh, the next interview. It's such an iterative process. And then the other piece of it is the accountability which I'm still not sure 100% of what that word means. Sometimes it's so charged, right? It's like, we need accountability. But what, what I do know is every week, whether you like it or not, and the beautiful echoes of that quote that I think is now being attributed to Lauren Michaels, where he says, Saturday Night Live doesn't go on every Saturday at 11.30 because it's perfect or even because it's ready. It goes on every Saturday at 11.30 because it's Saturday at 11.30. So every Sunday whether I had an extra glass of wine last night or whether it's somebody's birthday, I know there's people that are showing up and I need to do the same. And you can't lie and say you're always running to the studio, but you have systems in place so that when those things happen, you don't have to rely on willpower. And it, like I said, it, it's been, you know, I, I would wonder what I was like before it started, you know, before the commute to work where I listened to podcasts first. And then I began my own. It's just been an incredible transformational process. Do your students have any curiosities about it at all? Or is it, are they totally separate worlds? Somewhere in the middle. And, uh, and I'll give a quick anecdote. The other day, we Skyped in. Skype, I guess it was Zoom technically now, but I'm still using those, those proper nouns as, as verbs. But Zoomed into a, a classroom in Kenton, Ohio. And it's a tradition I've been invited to do a number of times. And now, depending on my class, some people are more interested than others. And a really fun moment was we were talking about communication and listening and the kids in Ohio asked like, what was, what's the secret to listening? And I pulled up a book and I held it up to the screen from Kate Murphy and it's called, you're not listening. And with that, with just as much natural grace as I could muster, I just said, Oh, I just booked an interview with Kate coming up. I'm really excited. She's been working on a lot of COVID reporting she's a journalist in Houston, but we're going to speak next week. And one of my students from the back yelled out, Mr. Ferrar, you're famous. Like for some reason, the fact that I nailed down Kate Murphy, this author of this book that was on my desk resonated for this girl to think I was famous. And I kind of like did a double take. I was like, I've also had Seth Godin. Like, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> like part of me wanted to flex. And part of me was like, they don't know who like Debbie Millman is. You know what I mean? So they know, but for a long time, Stuart, I didn't want to be Joey podcast to them. So if there was ever a natural opening, I'm open to talking about it. And, and a lot more now, right? Because 22 years in, the leadership in the building kind of knows a little bit about what my passions are. I don't lead with it, but, but some, somewhere along the line, kids know about it. Yeah, they're smart. They can figure it out. <laughs> so you, you've been running with this thesis of 1% better every day. And from what I understand, that means that if, even if you're doing a tiny bit, getting 1% better every day at the end of that year, it's compounded to such a degree that you're going to be so blown away with how far you've come as opposed to the opposite, which is not like negative every day or most days, at least if you're going in the positive. When did you first become aware of that idea? That's a great, great question to take me back to the origin story. And I, I, I know that kind of parallel, you heard a, little, a lot of James Clear's work, right? So he's, he's usually the one that gets attributed to that idea. And I don't know if that helped me land him on the podcast or not. It's one of those things where it's out there and you're like, well, I didn't steal it from James. James certainly didn't steal it from me, but like, you're just like kind of picking up on this. And then I, read, you know, I went and watched that video about the cyclists. I kind of looked at it as a, as a different way when I first started, which was like, why wouldn't you want your dinner to be 1% better? Or why 
can't you make your podcast 1% better? Or why wouldn't you want to be just a little bit better at X or Y? I used to have a propensity to be like, all right, it's almost summer. Let's do the crash diet. And we go like it was Atkins at the time and you lose like 30 pounds and you feel like amazing for two weeks. You look great for like a week and then all of a sudden you put 35 back on. And when you think about those things, that's the opposite of who I really wanted to be, more steady, slight incline. Even if you have a bad day, get back on the horse and go back and do it that way. So I I often think of it like, wait, if you're going to go to a restaurant, at least ask somebody who knows what places to go to and ask questions. And then you'll go to a little bit better restaurant. And then the next time you'll... And I looked at it that way. And then as the show unraveled, I think of now mindset, language, behavior, habits, as we kind of try to help people in those buckets. Gotcha. Yeah. And and in James Clear's book, there's a really amazing diagram that people can just Google. I'm sure it'll show up on his blog, but the math checks out. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what they tell me. I mean, there's compounding interest. There's something to it when when Buffett and Munger and now, you know, clear with I think four million copies sold on the day we're recording it of atomic habits. So that they they figured something else out. Yeah. Yeah. But you figured out a few things that I think are coins under your name. Would you be able to describe to us what a high velocity question is? A high velocity question is something that accomplishes more than one thing at the same time. And just recently, I think it was two weeks ago, I saw a piece where Morgan Housel said, whoever says the most stuff in the fewest words wins. So I liked his, he certainly wasn't talking about my framing and I wasn't talking about his, but I love when you can point to other pieces for people. And I love that he used the word stuff because when I ask a high velocity question, I'm allergic to small talk. We don't want to go down that road. How's the weather? You know, uh, those type of things. But we want to get to something that's not completely irrelevant either. I often point to the question that I heard once where it's, if you were a kitchen appliance, what would you be and why? And it makes me smile and it makes me giggle to think back to where I was, where I heard that. That's, that's definitely an outside the box question, but I don't think it goes in a direction. So when I think velocity, it's going fast without rushing and in a direction so you can think about where you're trying to go with your guests. And I, and I often try to think about it that way. So for those listening, it is, it's a method of asking questions that gets the kind of result. No, sorry. It gets you in a direction that you're, that you're interested in without necessarily making, making the whole map visible before you get there. Well, I like that. Yeah. I think an example that I've used, I'll tell you two quick ones. One is when I had Laura Gassner Odding on the show, I had my first question and often high velocity questions are my first question because I want the, the guest to feel something, right? I want her, him or her to feel like they're being taken care of, like they're at a good restaurant, that someone did the research. So I want to convey all that. But I also want to ask a question that advances the conversation so it doesn't go round and round and loop-de-loop. So I just opened up with with Laura and I said, I was going through your your Instagram and I'm just painfully curious about why you have a picture of a turkey heart. <laughs> and she just cracked up and we had just started recording and she she was blown away. She would later tell me she went on 150 podcasts and no one asked her a question even remotely like that. And I think at first glance, that could sound a little bit like the, the kitchen appliance question, but but really what what it was doing was going in a direction where I had concluded in my pre-show research that Laura was a badass. And she wasn't going to be afraid to say like, here's a turkey heart. Like I pulled it out with my hands and I'm going to cook it for my family tonight. 
oh, by the way, I'm also going to be on Good Morning America. <laughs> Another quick example is when I had Michael Gervais on the show, the first question I asked him was, hey, I'm about to go skiing for the first time. A lot of your work deals with fear and the relationship with it. What advice do you have for me as I head on my first skiing trip at the age of 42? He was like, whoa. Because like, you really, what I think about, and I'll, and I'll finish with this point, no one else could ask that question. And that's not putting me ahead of anyone else. It's just the individual question that honored where I was in my life. And the fact that I was going skiing lent itself to, to that conversation. And I think when we can find those opportunities, you end up having something that only Stuart can ask. And in that case, the next interview Michael went on, the guy wasn't going to be going skiing. So he can ask something else, but he doesn't have that. And that, that piece of high velocity, it's worked well for me as, as I've tried to get better and better at this craft. And you've done a great job of teaching these methods too, which is how you and I first became acquainted was through Twitter, you sharing your ideas about high velocity and me starting to write at the same time. And one thing that you've been really generous with your time is listening to people's episodes, particularly podcasts. And But for those listening, I don't think that podcasts, when we start talking about this idea of podcasting, just replace it with the word conversations, because that's what podcasting is, is really just two people having a conversation. So to apply this to your world, whether you're a content marketer and you can start asking better questions in your interviews, or if you're a parent, you can start asking better questions at the dinner table. Just with that back piece of back context, you've been very generous and listened to a few of my interviews. And I wanted to pull out a couple specific recommendations that you had to me, how I can improve my question asking. Are you cool if I bring those up? Very cool, but I want to applaud the, the the generosity with which you read kind of my work, which is it's not that I'm in love with podcasts. It, it's that I'm in love with conversations, precisely as you said. And the way I look at it is that podcasting is the national archives. There's no other place on earth that has cataloged, organized, and and distributed more conversations. So I think that's a way I try to tell people like, yeah, we love podcasting, but that's because we're recording conversations. If you want to record your kitchen table tomorrow night and send it to me, I would love to hear it. It's just that people aren't that willing to do it. And the work that I've started to do is to try to help people in their lives and work have every conversation sound more like a podcast. Oh, that's so interesting. I've never thought of it that way because yeah, you're right. Movies and TV would not be depiction of real life, everyday conversations. Actually, in most documentaries, you get creeped out when you watch people, how awkward they are in conversation. They just make it. It's totally opposite from what a movie, the romanticism of a movie versus just unscripted filming of people doing stuff. Right on. That's cool. There's actually a really interesting to just to kind of go off track for a sec, a podcast genre that I just recently found out about where this guy went on a 60 day kind of hike. And every morning at 9.45 a.m., he would just pull out his recording device that had a special type of microphone that records both the left and the right side. And then when it's recorded, it, you, just, you can then hear it on both sides of your headphones. And he would sit there for 10 minutes wherever he was at 9.45 during his hike and record those 10 minutes. And, some, and he, was, he was doing kind of like a cross country. So there were some remote parts and there were some urban parts. And then you just publish it on this timeline feed. So you had a 15 minute snippet of real life ambient audio wow. in with, with 3D audio. And I was listening to it and it took place in Japan. And I thought it was just the coolest use of 
this medium that now exists. I love it. I'm gonna have to track that down because any experimentation with sound is is really cool. I mean, even now you and I on video, it's a different nuance. We're picking up body language as everyone's promised us. But sometimes I do think, you know, if we if we covered up the camera, there would be something else gained. So I think there's just I love that we're all many of us are willing to experiment in both these forms right now. I think it's really helpful. It is. It is for sure. All right, let's get into some nitty gritty uh, improvements. So one that you brought up, you said you noticed that I asked a or question, meaning that I said something along the lines of, is this right or wrong? I'm kind of Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing. That wasn't the question, but you you can use that in examples like. Are you a t- are you a fan of this or a fan of that? You mentioned that I should swap out the words or and replace it with either what, when, how, or why. What? Yeah, what's up with I mean, that? I I try not to say should, so I hope I didn't say should. I, I you know, but I I do invite people to think about questions from from all different angles, and I I I'm certainly would never ask of someone else. I'm not what I'm asking myself, so I'm always examining. I did something really granular the other day on Twitter where I said, if you could only start a question with one word for the rest of your life, what would it be? What, how, why, or other? And I actually want to kind of finish that thread at some point because I go for what. I think that's like the one word that unlocks more. I used to think it was why. And that's just kind of how deep I get into this stuff and how much I love talking about it. But I think those words would would serve people well. If you only used what, how, and why to start questions, it would actually open up many, many doors. The either or example is one I love to, to use for people because I think you get a lot of bang for your buck when you switch out either or. So if I turned it around to you and I said, what do you like better when you do a, a podcast, a video or audio? What I've done there is I've set up these constraints. It, it Especially for beginner guests, if you have guests on that aren't as polished, you basically force them without them knowing it. They can only answer one of those two. More seasoned guests will run with it and give you an occasional... Actually, I think it's a third option, Stuart. But it takes such courageous communication to really break that wall that if you're interviewing all types of skill level people, which I think we love to do, I'm not big on giving them constraints. I may just switch that question and I say, what advantages do you see in the audio only format? And now I've led you, you can still go and say, actually, I like the video better, but I'm actually interested in the the less popular answer, which is the audio. And again, I do everything from a backwards design model. I say, what do I really want to know from my guest in this moment? And then I ask the very best question that I know at the time will give me the best chance. It's not always going to be perfect. But if I want to hear you weigh in on, you know, like what Terry Gross would say, audio only is more intimate, I may say, Terry Gross recently wrote, she believes that audio only is a better format for podcasting because of X, Y, and Z. How do you react when you hear that? But at the moment, that may not be the best question. And I feel like we have to give ourselves creative license to say, What's the best question we can ask with the information we have at our, at our disposal to get the result that we hope to uncover? And when I put up either ors, I think people can get a tremendous immediate ROI if they just take those out of their vernacular and just kind of ask the question one way. Is there a way that you should observe the person you're having a conversation with and see if they would respond better to a direct question or if adding those constraints would actually bring out a better question. A better well, answer, I, think that, I think that conversation is incredibly creative. And when people hear that, they get a little flummoxed sometimes. Because if you say, hey, name a creative act or art, they're going to say pottery. They're going to say, 
you know, fine finger drawing or, you know, fine arts. They're not going to say conversation and it's not going to make the top 10 on family feud. The top 10 answers on the board, creative art. I do think conversation is that way because if we were to record this tomorrow, even if we tried to rekindle this, we would ask different questions, have different follow-ups. And I think once we say that's okay, it's incredibly freeing. It's like, this is an organic experience. I know it's an overused word, but we build the conversation together. How the energy is in the room today, virtually or otherwise, builds that together. So the answer to your question for me is, I'm going to ask what feels right in the moment. If I see something in your body language that, that leads me that way, I'm going to try it. I'm going to feel absolutely no guilt if it doesn't work because I'm experimenting. I'm not going to be the late Chris Farley from Saturday Night Live hitting myself and saying, I'm so stupid when he sees you know, Paul yeah. McCartney. I'm just going to enjoy it. And, and I think that that trial and error, and then there's one last piece, a, a baseball coach to bring back one more reference, Jerry Weinstein once said, never make the same mistake once. And it sounds a little crazy, but the way you can do that in podcasting or in conversations is, and I've done this, I have to, I have to plead guilty. You ask a question and I'll pause your episode and I'll see how your guest answers it. Or I will let the guest answer, pause it and see what I would come back with if I was Stuart. And I actually do that. And I love doing that because I think what I'm doing there is I'm getting reps from someone else's podcast. Wow. Tell, tell me more about getting reps in because that's, I think, a really important part of this is, is actually practicing these techniques and you'll see how uncomfortable it can be, but how organic it feels after a while. Well, it depends what you mean by reps. If you mean getting on mic and actually recording with someone of your skill level, that's not going to be easily accessible for most people. But I don't think that there's anything wrong with interviewing your brother-in-law. On episode 150, I interviewed my father and it it to this day turns out to be one of my most prideful interviews and conversations because it confirmed for me a theory I didn't have words for, which was most people say when we do a podcast, we want it to be more like a conversation. I take the inverse approach. I say, I want our mundane conversations in everyday life that we alluded to earlier to be a little bit more podcast-like. Maybe there's some lights, not literally, but some lights. There's some juice. The microphone, I feel like, puts everyone on their toes, not their heels. And I like that part of it. So I think you can get reps in everyday life simply by asking the best possible question every day and not feeling any guilt if you don't ask a great one. The other thing I do, though, is that you know, while I'm listening to those podcasts, I'm saying, all right, what's my follow-up question going to be? Because I, I mentioned this to someone the other day. Tyler Cowen famously said he hates follow-up questions, and I'm still scratching my head over it. I mean, he made a good defense. He's a very bright guy. He made a great defense, but I still disagree because I have kind of this theory of like one question podcast, which I theoretically could interview you, have one question ready. If I do my job as a listener, and if I let my curiosity take over, I should be able to pull something interesting out of what you say next. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a pet project of mine to dissect follow-up questions because I think in a weird way, that's like where most of the curiosity lies, right? Where, and where most of the creativity lies, where you're like, he just said a paragraph. I've spoken for a little bit now. What you get to say next, it's your show. It's beautiful. Like I don't mean to over-dramatize it, but it really is because you might have A, B, and C floating around. And what I think really unlocks podcasters, people who want to be great in conversation, is saying, I'm going with B. 
and I'm not going to look back. And I think that's like a really, really cool thing. I mean, there's thousands of things going on in my head as I listen to that because I'm listening to you. I'm trying to recall things that I could follow up with if I wanted to, but I've also got a page full of notes here and fully fleshed out questions that I thought a lot about that I want to get to, right? So this is a funny type of experiment, but to your point about active listening, when you're talking to someone, you don't go into most conversations with a notepad full of questions. So in theory, you could start any conversation with one single what, how, or why question, and that leads to three hours of just sitting over coffee. And it does. We've Everyone experienced this. I'll give you one more tangible thing that people can walk away with and see what you think about it. The next time you have dinner, and hopefully it's, it's in a safe place where you kind of, you know, you know the people and you're, and you're doing everything you can to be safe. Imagine what would happen is if you, if you said, hey, Thursday when we have dinner, I'd love to talk about what you think about the movie, blah, 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 that you know you both saw. I'd love to talk about what your next hopes are for 2021. And one other thing, you don't give her a list of questions, but you've given her three guardrails. Imagine what that conversation will be like. You, you'll, you'll supercharged it. And if people say, well, I don't know, it takes the spontaneity out of it. I'm going to beat you at that own argument. I think Tuesday night date, no, date night with your wife takes the spontaneity out of it too, but I still love it. Because the guardrail is every Tuesday night, I, I have a date night with my wife, and maybe we want to make popcorn, and maybe we want to go tango dancing. The spontaneity is within the guardrails, and I think that can really help people as they, as they don't want to waste time, right? Our time's so precious, and we want the conversations to just be wrung out with all that they can. There are a few frameworks that you brought to my attention in the, when you were deconstructing my last podcast episode that I'd love to, for you to expand on a little bit. So... And I think these might have to do specifically with conversation openers, but you can correct me if they're more general use. But there's one that you mentioned that was micro to macro. What does that mean? It's a technique that emerged when I was coaching a client. And I have a couple of clients right now where one in particular, I'll use an example, he's a writer and he, he wanted to just be better at the podcast game. He just, you know, I don't mean to use the game lightly, but the game as it re results in theater, which can be a business opportunity. You know, you talk so much about distribution and marketing on your show. I mean, is there a better way to to kind of reveal who you are and not be a front than than a on a 40-minute conversation? So when he's going on these shows, if he's not doing his very best, it's almost like, well, you don't know what you have unless you try, but if you try at the wrong time with the wrong skill, that might be your opportunity. So to make a long story short, he was looking for some tangible ways to answer questions without being robotic. And he actually named it. You know, I talked it through and he said, well, if we can name it, it might help a lot. And we we settled on micro macro. And, you know, it, it could be it could be any question. Someone might say, what is the key to podcasting? And there's an infinite amount of, way to, of ways to answer that question. But if you want to use the micro macro tool, then you might say something like, what is the key to podcasting? And then your, your turn and you say, preparation. So you give the immediate answer, you throw them the immediate answer, and then you go macro. And I might say, preparation. I can't help but think about the Abraham Lincoln quote that says, give me eight hours to chop down a tree. I'll take the first six hours to sharpen the ax. And when I think of podcasting, yada, 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 yada. Instead of the long circuitous route and then arriving at preparation, you hit him with the cookie and then you unpack it and you can get a feel for how much time you have. And I think that's just one of many techniques that I try to work with with clients who are interested in 
how can I actually make this a, a damn good conversation? I think you actually used the micro macro method in answering that question. Did you not? <laughs> I did. I absolutely did. I mean, that was, listen, you, it, it sounds weird. Like when you throw, it's not a template, it's a tool, right? I actually look at it as like a technique. And eventually if you have 25 techniques, I kind of look at it like a, an, M, an MMA fighter, right? Or UFC fighter. You only have one kick. You're going to be incredibly dangerous. But then once people realize that it's so predictable and you've lost that power, but if you can do Muay Thai and you can do a little bit of boxing, I think that that's what I try to do with people is see what their unique styles are and then make them more of themselves with a few other techniques wrinkled in. Hmm. All right, let's get to another technique then. Tell me about story launch. Story launch is something that Seth Godin, I'm not going to say made popular because I don't know how conscious he is about calling it a technique. He's the teacher, but he'll talk about canoe teaching and whatnot. But story launch would be anytime you just, instead of going micro macro, you, you start with an actual story. So, so the question might be, I'm doing both sides here. So it's a little, a little challenging, but actually let's play, let's put it right back. You're a seasoned podcaster. Ask me any question at all about anything and I'll give you the story launch right here live. No net. Joe, I don't. I noticed there aren't any plants in your background. Is there a reason why? When I was seven years old, Stuart, my dad would be obsessed with ferns, and I never saw the appeal. He would take this spray bottle, and he's using it to like spend more time on these ferns than like my bedroom cleaning. And I'm like, Dad, like, what is the appeal? And he's like, You don't get it. You don't understand. This is life-giving. This is a hobby. This is this. And ever since then, I've tried. I even had Summer Ray Oaks on the show. She's like this famous Brooklyn plant whisperer. And I killed one of the plants that she recommended, Stuart. So I don't have any greenery. And I feel like I could use some. And I'm looking at yours now. And I'm thinking, wouldn't it be great to have like a plant over here? But, but that's the story launch. So before you even know what's happening, I've just thrown you into the story. And I think if, if people who know Seth's work, he does it all the time. Like he'll throw in, I was canoeing or when I'm juggling and, and it's just another technique that I, that I love to use. And actually it's a great, honestly, you want to make that a parlor game. Think about how fun that is to be like, throw out the technique and let people see if you can make connections. Cause I had no qu clue what question you're going to ask. And then I have to model the technique. So I don't know if it's for everybody. I, genuinely loved doing that. Like if we went off air and we tried that as a game, like you wouldn't get like, I have to be like, honey, I'm, I'll be there soon. Like, you know what I mean? I love it that much. Yeah. And, and I think it, it's, it's, I want to say it again. It's not about how I do it. It's like, if I gave you that technique to go try in the wild, when you put your own spin on it, I think it, I think it like moves mountains when it comes to conversation. What I'm thinking about right now is how much fun it is to practice these in the wild when you're chatting with someone. And unfortunately, this last year, we've probably been at a deficit of actually practicing talking with people one on one. But when you're allowed to again, it's going to be so cool to see how people are different in their conversations. And I think by using some of these tools, you can get really sharp really quickly when things kind of when you're allowed to start meeting people again. I agree 100%. I, I look forward to that time. And, and what an opportunity if, if, if people like you and people like me can, can really fall in love with language and try to help people do it. So it's almost like you emerge out of this horrific time, at least with one skill set sharpened. I think that's super valuable. And I'm glad you know, we're, we're really aligned on that point. It's pretty cool. Yeah. There's one more tool that we might have covered it 
mostly throughout the rest of the conversation, but I'd love to hear how you think about framing when it comes to conversations. I love framing for job interviews. And actually, accidentally, that was that was framing. But but this is what framing is. Framing is someone says, tell us about yourself. Famous first question. And there's, there's probably many people listening right now that are saying, like, that is the most awkward question in the world. Well, the framing is probably my favorite technique. So if, if I come into an interview and work at your company and you say, Joe, before we get started, we have a lot of qualified candidates. You're one of them. Thank you much for being here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? People start getting a cold sweat. But I think framing could work in a podcast, but it works incredibly well in a job interview when I say, well, first of all, thank you so much for being here and, and having me. It's an honor. It really is. When I think about my life as a professional, I really think about it in three buckets. I think about the content that I'm producing. I think about the content I'm consuming. And I think about the, the work-life balance. And then when I use those three pillars, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And what I've done is just what you do in your writing so brilliantly. You set up the expectation for the reader, in this case, the listener. So everyone who's in that panel is like, I'm going to be looking throughout the interview for whether or not Joe points to, well, you said, you, and you can bet on it. Someone's going to say later, you said you consume a lot of uh, content. What are some of the things you're reading? Boom. Well, I'm already ready. I'll go to the bookshelf and I'll mentally pick out Carol Dweck or I'll go out there and I'll pick up, you know, I mean, it could be <laughs> anything. It could be, it could be at any source of things. But I think when you frame an answer, I think it allows you to stay on track. And I think it gives the listener some real, real clear guidelines of what to follow. Right before lockdown, I, I was interested in this stuff and I went to a Toastmasters meeting. And that was one of the, during the theory part where they kind of give you a little bit of education on how to become a better public speaker. That was certainly one of the ones that they brought up very early is uh, don't dig yourself a hole by talking about everything in the world. If it, if it helps you, actually in your first sentence, kind of like what you did say, well, I think about topic A, B, C. So now no matter what, you have to stay within those A, B, C topic barriers. And I thought that was really interesting. And it's hard to do. It takes practice. But once you actively say it out loud, you kind of have to stick with the point you're going with. Yeah, I like that. I've never, I've seen the Toastmaster stuff. Obviously, I've never studied or anything like that. So it'd be interesting to see if there was some more crossover than I originally thought. But I love that. I'll put that on my file to kind of poke around with. Yeah. And for people who are interested in practicing public speaking, you can just go for free, at least in the, in the city I'm in. I think in all uh, Toastmasters program. I don't know if they're going to run them again with people together, but you can just go and don't have to pay anything. Just show up and you get the stage for a few minutes and you're speaking in front of a bunch of strangers, which is weird. But at the end of it, sometimes they give you a ribbon if you did well. It's very, <laughs> it's a very supportive community and it's not, all right. it's not weird at all, but uh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That was super helpful, Joe. Those are really great tools to, to add to conversational toolbox, both personally. Now, I just like to kind of steer towards the professional side and understand a little bit more about how these tools and methodologies can help us with our either internal communication with dealing with colleagues, but also external communication. Uh, a lot of the listeners here are somehow involved in the marketing community, how we can start using questions and communication more effectively in the stuff that we're showing our customers. 
if I throw out a really blanket statement that's going to seem incredibly obvious, I, I've been doing this recently, and then people just nod their head and say, yeah, absolutely, that's definite. But then I don't think people think of the power behind it. And, and the statement is this, better questions, asking better questions leads to better conversations. I believe that in my bones. Like on a basic level, if I ask you better questions, it's going to lead to better conversations. If we have a lifelong rapport, maybe that would supersede the question. Although I would challenge that to say, people listening, you might not have had the best conversations in your life with your mother-in-law. You've known her for a very long time. You have the rapport. And it probably comes down to something like, is she really asking you questions or is she saying this? And of course, it's it's the stereotypical mother-in-law joke, which my mother-in-law happens to be great. So it doesn't really apply here, but I think people can relate to it. So I just believed and I doubled down on that. So I think in our professional lives, if you become the kind of person that is typically asking the best possible question you can, and when you hear other people asking questions, ask stealing it from them and saying, wow, I love how she framed that. And you start collecting questions. And I don't mean necessarily the actual question itself as much as the framing or the style of it. I think it just continues to, to, as I mentioned earlier, spiral. And all of a sudden now you're like, you just have this, not invincibility by any means, but kind of like this confidence that you're going to try to ask questions. And I think quickly, I'll just digress to say it started very early on when I went to baseball camps and we had a guest speaker and there would always be a major league baseball player and no one would ask a question. So I started talking to my dad about it and he said, why don't you try? And then you ask a really dumb question and you know, that's it. But then, then you ask a question like something about Mike Schmidt. And uh, I said something about Mike Schmidt's salary being $2 million. And I'll never forget Bob Denier, major league player, laughed, turned to his agent and said, I'll take the change. And I never knew what it meant. I'm like, what do you mean I'll take the change? I went home and told my dad. And all of a sudden my dad's like, that means he makes like $2.7 million. And Bob Denier doesn't even make seven hundred thousand dollars. So what you left and like that whole thing is just iterative. So to really answer your question directly, I think on a daily basis, on an, on a conversation by conversation basis, how can you continue to ask better questions and you're going to have richer conversations. And I'll just conclude by saying the other day, I, I um, in a text thread with some colleagues, uh, someone poked fun at me and he was like, busiest man in the building. Well, I took that as a compliment. He was busting chops. But like I'm trying to teach the students and then in my free time trying to do this and trying to be a, a work-life balance. So like I do want to be busy. You want to be busy. You don't want to be overcommitted. And I think those two things work hand in hand. Like if I'm getting ready for this interview and then I'm going to lesson plan, like I like that style of always moving. And I think people, people with some sense of urgency who are listening, they can pick up on that. And I think they can incorporate that right into their businesses. Yeah, both the people you engage with every day and then also when you're on a sales call or interviewing a customer or writing the email copy, that energy, I think, brings better work as well. And it's not just starting every day sluggishly trying to type up something that has no inspiration. But if you're, if you're actively recalling interesting tidbits from that last conversation you had, it's, it's inspiration. It's ongoing and it, keeps, it applies to everything you do. I got a few more here for you, Joe, and then I think we'll we'll wrap things up because my my brain is kind of exploding right now with <laughs> with all these things I, I need to start it. applying. I'm gonna go it. sit down to dinner and and lay down <laughs> some serious mind bending <laughs> questions. 
Oh my goodness. And you know, um, uh, real quick to interrupt, you know, I, I think that sometimes I try to try to ask a fancier question because it feels right in the moment. But I'll tell you one thing we do in my household is at dinner, we say, what was the highlight of your day? And you got to know your audience, right? Because that can feel a little bit like someone's at the Cheesecake Factory and they don't know what to order, a little overwhelmed. But if once you build that into the daily practice, I think it's like infinitely better than how was your day? You know, what was one thing that happened today that was funny? Or And you can just go there. It's, it's not that it's fancy, right? But if you try tonight, what was the highlight of your day to your partner or your friend? I think you're going to have a pretty good return. Now, again, you might get a little, let me know. I would like to know how it goes because you might get a little, what am I on a show here? And then that's how you know you're doing it right. You have to say, of course, no, 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 no. I'm just, just curious. But in your head, that's the North Star. Like if someone says, I feel like I'm being interviewed here. That's a good thing. Don't let them know <laughs> yeah. that, but that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. Something that you've brought up a couple of times that I think is worth mentioning too is specificity, like being specific with questions. And it, you demonstrated it before when you just you told me to start using how and why. And then you also just brought it up there where you actually ask about, tell me about something that happened to you today makes them recall what happens today. And then it leads to a bigger conversation, which eventually will answer the question of how was your day? But if you said what happens today, it's kind of a, a leading question towards the thing that you're actually trying to get at. Yeah, you're right on. And I think I don't want to lose people when I say this, but I truly believe it. I think that the number six in writing is funnier than the number seven. So if you're saying something or you're writing it and you're like, I mean, I could tell you that's wrong for at least six different reasons. Or I feel like that's wrong with for seven different reasons. There's certain numbers that actually are funnier than others. And I think yeah. 11 might be the best. Oh, that's wrong for about 11 different reasons. But the reason I use that silly example that's dead serious is I do love a degree of precision. I do love, I heard something recently, and I bet you saw it across your desk somewhere digitally, which is the idea that you don't want to use a thesaurus necessarily when you're when you're writing and i think speaking to some degree you're looking for the very best word to convey it so specificity pays off handsomely in writing and in conversations not to pry but someone pointed out recently to me that i am detail oriented when it comes to conversations right and i and i i feel like that language of micro macro i tend to go more towards the micro cuz then i come out Mm -hmm. I could imagine myself saying, Stuart, what's your worldview? But I feel like that's not typically my style. I would only use that if I wanted to completely change the tone of the conversation, mm -hmm. right? I'd rather say, what's your dream meal, which is a way of drilling down into your worldview. Because now if you say answer A, I'll know more about you. If you say answer B, it'll take me down a different path. I wouldn't be against using that because my philosophy, as I stated much earlier, is I want to ask the very best question to achieve what I'm hoping to uncover from you. And I'm flexible in those moments. But I do think detail and specificity play a, a huge part in what I'm trying to do in a conversation. Yeah. And marketing as well, you, the, being specific with what you're talking about allows people to self-identify and say, oh, never mind, this isn't even for me. It's kind of the same way as if you're, if you're, if you're bringing up specific topics in a conversation, the person's totally like, I don't know why you're bringing that up. Then you as also a conversationalist can say, well, looks like I don't need it. Like, I don't want to waste another conversation with this person because it's obviously not going to go anywhere. I love that. Last one for you here, Joe. 
what you've, you've named off a whole bunch of really impressive communicators who have been on your podcast. So I would highly recommend people go check out 1% better and listen to your name, your, have your pick. There's tons of great, great communicators on there, but are there any other resources that you would recommend for people to check out that have really helped you in your journey to master the conversation? Wow. I'm, I'm slightly addicted to Twitter. I mean, I'm not going to run away from that, right? I, I just launched a damn good Convos Twitter, but I'm on Ferraro on air where I've been trying to build a community with great people like you. So I am certainly seeing things there. Like I ran that poll I mentioned, and now I'll be able to go back and, and actually engage and say, hey, you know, I've noticed that you, like, like, for example, the other day someone said, I think tell me about is a great way to start a question. And I'm going to have to find a way to politely disagree. And I don't have all the answers. I want to be very clear about that. I don't enjoy that question starter unless you want to give the mic away. If you want to pass the rock and I need a break for whatever series of reasons I've been talking too much. If I say, hey, Stuart, tell me about your journey to, to creating top of mind. I have to be prepared to not talk again for 15 minutes. If you decide, you can give me a 30 second version of it but I don't enjoy that part of it. So I think that's a big thing on Twitter. And then quickly, I'll have to say, I kind of dig Clubhouse. And I feel like there's all kinds of problems, but I think that some of the solutions are in, in early form, there's these really low risk entry points. I've been running a room every Saturday at 11 o'clock Eastern, and it's just a damn good conversations club. And if people are interested, I'm happy to, to kind of welcome them in and, and take them through it. It's, it's open for everybody who loves to, to talk about the kind of stuff we've been talking about. And I just think it's great because we're jamming on the do's, the don'ts, what ifs. I wonder what happens if I invite you to the language. And I, I hope it didn't come across like, like too nerdy because I really do love it. And I guess if, if you don't love it, you wouldn't have made it this far into the conversation. But the truth is, it's not some esoteric trapeze act of, of communication. It's actually the bread and butter, right? Like our words and our questions are the actual bread and butter of daily communication. If you want to connect with someone, I don't know how you do it any better than asking them a really generous question and then listening for the answer. Are there any books or interviewers that people should go check out that really do like just nail it or we can learn um, from? Julian Treasure has a, a couple of TED Talks. It's famously uh, his TED Talk on speaking is like 10 times more watched than his one on listening, which I think I identifies a problem in the zeitgeist. Julian's phenomenal. He really focuses on sound. There's a book called Listening for Success by Steve Shapiro, which you could find a PDF on, uh, kind of free floating around the internet. You could definitely, I could pass it along to you if you find uh, trouble finding that. As far as interviewers, you know, I think what I would point people to is trying to get away from the herd mentality and not just deifying the most popular podcasters. I say this with absolute sincerity because I've said it off air. You shocked me with how far along your journey you are when you said, well, I've only been doing this for a certain amount of time. And I, I genuinely went back and scrolled through to see how many episodes you had because I saw in you a real art and, and science of conversation. And I was like, I don't care if he's at the top of the iTunes chart or if he has a show on YouTube or whatever he does. I love the way that this guy works. And I truly believe it's an honor to be on the, the podcast like this because of how seriously you take it. 
But if we use someone who doesn't need any, any more plaudits like Joe Rogan, there's nothing wrong with what he does. I love what he does. But watch him and study him so that you can do what he does if you want to or break the rules that he does. And one final thought on how you can do that. Joe interrupts his guests, but I don't think it's a bad thing. You're always taught not to interrupt your guests and you've done none of that. But if you think of Joe Rogan style, and maybe this is the macro tip for people, which is why not try to categorize the style of interviewer you are about to go on? And for Joe, he's kind of, you know, he's got the straight on look, right? He's kneecapped to kneecap with the person. And if the person says, well, you know, I, I grew up just outside of, you know, like Tahoe, Tahoe, oh, I didn't see you as a Tahoe guy. Like he won't let him finish. Yeah. He'll jump right in. He's not going to wait 10 minutes. That's Rogan style. If, if, if he says, well, we all know, you know, Kamala Harris is a, is a tremendous politician. Well, what, what do you mean we all know that? I mean, you can't just say that. What do you mean you're going to say? It? And it's, it's not like he's waiting till the end, but there's nothing wrong with that. That's his right. style. That's not my style. So maybe people listening, go, go and just listen to someone with a different prism and say, what do I like about what she does? What do I like about what he does? And what would I do differently if I had my own podcast? I think that's a cool way to go about it. You did the you do his voice really well. <laughs> I, I do have some impersonation wishes, but I never, I don't really do, think too much about Joe's impression. But thank you, he's real. You know what <laughs> it is? It's studying people. Yeah, he's close. He's to the mumbling mic, into the mic. <laughs> <laughs> I think there might be a little bit of. Uh, I think the interrupting interrupting style of interviewing would be much easier to do in person because there's no lag through internet communication. But I do agree. Like I, I definitely don't like to inter- interrupt people as much, but it's cool to listen to those and be like, okay, why did they do that? How did that steer the conversation? And then from listening to you today, understand what tools that person's using to guide that conversation. I don't know how the hell he does three hour long conversations, but <laughs> that's a skill in itself. <laughs> that's some serious stamina, man. Yeah. Well, Joe, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And if people want to follow along, Ferraro on air is his Twitter handle. And then damngoodconversations.com is the new home of everything, everything damn good about these conversations. <laughs> yeah. I've had so much fun building it. Exactly. If you go there, I, I, I pinky promise to respond to every email and I, and every DM. And it's, it's something I love to do. And you know, if this was any valuable for people, I'm, I'm thrilled. And as I said, man, you do an unbelievable job. I've been looking forward to this uh, for a few days and certainly all day. And I can't wait to, to kind of see how your career continues to progress. Appreciate it, Joe. Thanks, man. You got it.